Hello, and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads, episode 41, discussing Buddhism and nationalism. I am your host, Dharma Kirti, joined as always by the squad today of Aura and Yamnaya Mindset, if you guys want to say hi. Hello, what's up? Hi, everyone. And uh, we've been wanting to do this topic for a while. We, um, we, it's something that has come up in the past, and we sort of touched on it in various points. I, I don't know the numbers of the episodes off the top of my head, and I'm sure we'll, we'll recover that ground for the most part here, so it may not be super relevant. But it, it's a perennial, I think it's a, it's a topic that we get a lot of questions about. It's obviously a kind of, um, it, it's something that's important, and it's something that a lot of people are curious about, for for I guess two related reasons the 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 first one is that um, just owing to the historical reception of Buddhism in the West the way that it's sort of um, you know the kinds of people that have been attracted to Buddhism especially in the United States since roughly the 1960s and this whole kind of hippie thing um, Buddhism particularly in the United States but really just I think in the West generally has been very closely associated with a certain kind of left-wing um, politics of which, you know, internationalism and globalism and a kind of, you know, a certain kind of pacifism are all very closely intertwined. Um, in, in a kind of extreme form, this, I think, manifests either as what, you could, what we've called California Dharma. We had an episode on that and kind of hilarious, you know, like mindful porn usage and this sort of nonsense. Um, and on the other extreme, something like you see with uh, Bob Thurman, where it's basically just, you know, it, it, it's indistinguishable from regular ass Democrat Party neoliberalism, um, you know, left flavored, uh, blue flavored neoliberalism, just with sort of a veneer of of Buddhism, which is not quite the same thing as California Dharma. Um, but. Uh, yeah, and and these are these are both very problematic, and I I would really ultimately say neither of them is is under, like you 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 can't understand either of those things as Buddhism, um, from certainly not from my perspective, but the 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 fact of the matter is that the this is I this is what a lot of people understand to be Buddhism, particularly in the United States, is you know it's what it, it's an easy critique, and it's very closely associated in people's minds. So when people you know when when someone like myself or or the guys here or some of the guys you know that we um, who are fans of the show and so on, um, when we talk about this stuff or when we identify as both Buddhists and nationalists. This can, you know, be kind of like, how, how does that work? You know, people are it's sort of like curious of, of why, how, how is it that, you know, you're a Buddhist and a nationalist, right? Um, the, the, other, uh, the other big, big picture reason, which is, is, is sort of like the nature of those historical trends, which is that, you know, like that kind of particular moment of people in the United States encountering Buddhism in the 1960s as part of like hippie counterculture or whatever. There's actually a preceding history to that. And, and it has to do with, you know, um, like Orientalism and P this Buddhism is the religion of science. We talked a little bit before about, you know, the relationship between Buddhism and science and this crazy guy, uh, Colonel Henry Steele Olcott and Madame Blavatsky. And, and there's this, there's this whole kind of history of, of Buddhism as, as sort of being, misappropriated by Westerners in a certain way who, who have a very particular kind of agenda. Um, but, but I guess the point is that the, the reasons don't really matter. Um, we're now in a situation where the, uh, 
the question of what Buddhism is going to look like in the West is still open. And, you know, I, I have my own perspective and my own reasons for having that perspective. But, but I, I think one of the points that I'd like to make, and, and really more than anything else, the reason why I would say I'm both a Buddhist and a nationalist, but, but more importantly, why um, I think nationalism is important is, you know, I, I keep saying this, I've said this on the third rail, I'll, I'll say this again here, we are a reality-based movement. The thing that I see in common, the common thread between dissident politics and Buddhism is at fundamental level, what we are about is a, is a deep encounter with reality. What the problem is with liberalism or neoliberalism or left-wing thought generally is there's an attempt to impose our like wishes are the way we like things to be or the way that we sort of come up with in our minds a priori well it wouldn't be nice if things work this way and we just you know there's a disconnect between that and the way things really are and rather than having that cause us to go back and say well maybe we should change our premises or maybe we should look at this from another angle or maybe we should you know there's there's repeated and increasingly desperate attempts to force reality to conform to our biases rather than the other way around and that way just lies you know suffering madness and and death um and nowhere i think in the in the present world is this more apparent than with the um the situation that the west finds itself in where you know we as westerners as people of european descent white people whatever you want to call it are being told that you know for the for some combination of reasons that actually the reasons don't ultimately really even necessarily matter all that much. Um, we must give up our homelands. We must give up our sense of ethnic solidarity. We must give up any attempt. You know, we, we are not allowed to have an ethnos. We are not allowed to have a state that represents, we're not allowed to have interests fundamentally. You're not allowed to have a nuclear family. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and all of these things, I mean, there, there's, there's several different ways you can approach this thing, but, but the bottom line is, that that is not good for anyone. That's not good for us as Westerners. But it, it's it's not even good for like the people that are t that that think it's in their interest to convince us of this. It's only going to cause more suffering. It's only going to cause chaos and anarchy. It's only going to have a bad result. The reality is, you know, we can say like Buddhist ethics are universalist to the extent that you know our motivation certainly from a Mahayana perspective, but even really just, I think, in, in general, our motivation needs to be, you know, we want all sentient beings to attain the ultimate result of being completely happy and completely free of suffering and, and never have even the possibility of suffering ever again. And that applies to ourselves and that applies to our family and that applies to our nation and that applies to all sentient beings without exception. Okay, so you could say that that, that is, in fact, universalist in, in a certain sense. But that's not to say that like, you know, therefore it doesn't look, we, we don't have any more obligation to our family and, and to our nation than we do to like random strangers on the other side of the planet. To the extent that that is kind of true in a kind of like, you know, idealized way in terms of bodhisattva ethics or like certain kinds of narratives that Buddhists have about, you know, like like great saints or bodhisattvas who behaved really altruistically in, in a certain kind of way. That's an ideal that we have to live up to. And it's most importantly, you, you can't just sort of will yourself like, OK, now I'm a bodhisattva and I'm going to like behave this way that bodhisattvas, when they act that kind of a way, it's the result of 
you could say eons of you know lifetimes upon lifetimes but at the very least in in their particular lives that we're talking about decades of training their minds reorienting their habits you know it's it's a result of long hours of struggle and and really coming to grips with their most deep-seated tendencies to be in a selfish in a certain way to to value their own lives and the lives of their immediate kin over the lives of random ass strangers on the other side of the planet and there's nothing wrong with that that's the key point here is like you you have to start where you are and starting from where you are rec means recognizing that you know you you can't just like in you know impose from people a top-down system of universalist value ethics where they're they're going to be you know we, we have to treat everyone exactly the same in all circumstances first of all that's not even intelligible in, in buddha like that that's not how buddhism works generally but especially not when like it's very obvious that that's not going to work like you don't need to be some great genius to say that that's not going to work and 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 the the, the proof of that is all around us like there's no you know it, 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 like you know the the weird we're neck deep in this obviously failed experiment in multiculturalism it, it's it's already failed the failures are all around us uh you know we, the the guys on tedious were talking on friday about this article in uh whatever business insider i mean this is a, you know this is not news to anyone who has their head screwed on right but you know the 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 capitalism the, the capitalist class is increasingly aware that diversity is a way to increase their control over society that diversity is bad for workers that it breaks worker solidarity and only serves the interests of capital so if if you are if you are interested in a just society if you are interested in you know basic human fairness you have to be at some level some kind of a nationalist that doesn't mean going to war with everybody that isn't you that doesn't mean you know mistreating people but it does mean you have to start from a place of recognizing reality and the reality is you know we we, we are we are social beings and our social nature is 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 dependent upon the family and the nation the tribe whatever you want to call it and and there's no way around that and there's never going to be like if we weren't that kind those kinds of creatures that had that kind of an outlook we wouldn't be human beings we would be some other kind of 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 being right so this is this problem is never going to go away and any contact with reality is going to involve a contact with the reality of the necessity of something like a nation the, the necessity for human flourishing for the flourishing of the dharma for you know ultimate benefit for sentient beings of something like nation states and with that i'd like to see because I, I that was my opening monologue or rant or whatever but uh i'm, I'm curious what you all have to say well i very much agree with what you said. And um, to take one of the things you said as a jumping off point, you know, you were talking about, you know, how, how would a, a bodhisattva um, actually reach that kind of truly universal salvific love for all beings throughout all time and space? Uh, how, how would that ever be built from the position of just like a regular person uh, towards that direction? And, and you took the words right out of my mouth, which is you have to start exactly where you are. You can't have you can't first of all the you know the acts of quote unquote kindness to the other side of the world are very very often um extremely harmful actions you know you look at at the international aid programs as they work and and how disruptive those are um not just to our country but to, to countries that are quote unquote being helped um but uh even if that weren't the case it's all theoretical that that kind of few, that kind of far away love you know telescopic um what's the term i'm looking for 
um, telescopic altruism, right? So you have to start right where you are, and that's the hardest part, um, you know, and I think it's a bit of a truism and maybe a little bit unfair sometimes, but I think there's a definite tendency you see in people with this kind of um, militant, um, if you can call them like militant centrists of, of neoliberalism, you know, the, the, basically the normies who really, really triple down on their, their norminess about, uh, about things like, you know, universalism and, um, you know, all people are exactly the same at all times and all circumstances. And the only reason there's ever a difference between them is because somebody's being evil to them. Um, the, the people who really, really hold that as a one of their core beliefs are often miserable people who have terrible relationships with their own families, um, who, you know, who hate the people at their work, who snipe at, at people in their lives or, you know, in their online social media or whatever. Um, and, you know, I mean, that, that, that shows the lie of it right there. Um, and, it, you know, not that I'm somebody who, who never gets, you know, <laughs> never has friction with people in my lives, you know, quite the contrary, but the only way you're ever going to build from um, from a place of just sort of you know human fallenness, if you if I'm allowed to use that term, to something better, something improved, um, even as far as Buddhahood, then it has to start with what's right in front of you. You have to be kind to that person on the street, or the kind to your wife when you're in a fight with her, kind to your kind to yourself too. Um, you know, and recognizing what of your own behaviors is causing you harm and which, which behaviors would lead to your ultimate happiness. I mean, that's sort of the core of Buddhism right there. And, um, to transition just, a, just a slight bit as an anecdote, um, and maybe this, you know, it's just a little bit lighthearted anecdote, but, um, you know, as a, as a Buddhist and as a nationalist, I'm sort of outside the mainstream in Western society. Uh, on both counts, um, sort of in different directions in, in terms of how they're viewed, right? And you, you said this at the very start, DK, which is that, you know, while nationalism is viewed as like, you know, just, you know, evil Hitler, you know, um, say, you know, just awful thing. Um, on the contrary, Buddhism is viewed as this like nice, you know, like kind of hippie, you know, oh, let's all just get along kind of thing that's not really a serious religion or practice, you know, the, the California Dharma thing, as you said. Um, so it's an interesting contradiction and, um, you know, I, I usually, I hide my power levels 99% of the time, just like most people do, um, purely out of self-interest most of the time. Uh, but other times it's just not the appropriate time and place to be talking about politics of any sort. But, um, you know, I, I live kind of a rootless cosmopolitan life myself. And as a result, I, I often, um, I'm taking jobs in new places and stuff. And it just this last year, I took a, a job in a major um, Western city, um, a city in the Western world, if you will. And, um, you know, I, I met a whole bunch of new colleagues. And um, an interesting thing is that it, I, I didn't really intend it this way, but it's now become my new strategy, which is that to let on about the um, let on about the Buddhism stuff early on, and then only let on about the, uh, the power levels, uh, little bits here and there later. And it has an interesting effect on people I've found. And again, I'm not trying to manipulate anybody or anything, but I'm just trying to open up with friends and, you know, let them get to know me. Because if you start by revealing your power levels before, you know, before people trust you or know you as a good person or something, then then they're, unfortunately, they're just usually going to write you off and then uh, be suspicious of everything you 
say and do after that point. But, you know, I, I, I now have friends who, who know me as the, the guy who's into Buddhism. And I'm also into all kinds of other hippie drippy stuff. Longtime listeners of this show will remember me talking about crystals and magic and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I let people know that. And, and, and then later when they hear that I, I don't particularly have a problem with like, uh, I don't know, Rodrigo Duterte, for example, they kind of scratch their heads because that's, you know, that doesn't fit in with the model of like, you know, believing in global homo and believing in Buddhism are somehow supposed to go hand in hand. But those two things, of course, true Buddhism, in my, my opinion, is, um, is kind of an anti-global homo thing for the precise reasons that DK said, which is that, you know, we're going for an encounter with reality. And the, the problem with the, the massive globalist uh, neoliberal agenda is that it is... Uh, yeah, well, in its naive version, it, it's just a denial of reality, and in its cynical version, it's manipulating people who believe in denying reality, so that uh, you know, so that certain elites who prosper off of uh, off of all the chaos and confusion and uh, can can in line their own pockets. Um, but uh, I, you know, later later on in this episode, I'd like to get into some specific examples of of you know how traditionally Buddhist societies have manifested. Um, what well, we why don't we why don't we just but, why don't we just go for it? Let's do that now. Well, sure, but I just wanted to know if um, if uh, Yamnaya wanted to jump in or anything, so I'm not talking for too long. Well, I guess not. Then he must be he must be AFK. Um, oh no! Um, I'm sorry that my mic was not working properly. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I don't know. Did you have anything? I guess. Add, I guess there is. A, you know, I had some specific examples in mind, but just a general observation seems to be that the uh, the way that the so-called quote compassion of neoliberals and leftists in general seems to be just like this incredibly samsaric thing on both the level that they're extremely attached not to the real Somali but to their image of the Somali or some other random immigrant group that they're mostly concerned about, while at the same time extremely contemptuous of the person next door and their actual real needs. Oh, do you need jobs? No, well, would you like some drag queen story hour instead? Oh, okay. That's, it, it, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Oh, oh you it's don't want it? Here, you're getting it anyway. Divorced from it. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, it, it's, it, it is just, it's extraordinarily divorced from realities or from any real sense of what people's needs actually are. And uh, it just, it's, I can think of no better description for it than being just absolutely samsaric. Yeah, man, that's, that's true. And I don't know if you wanted to jump in your examples, but I, um, I won't go into all of these right now, but I'll just sort of set the table and we can pick what we want to talk about. But I, I was just trying to list some sort of manifestations of um, nationalism where it dovetailed just fine. Um, with Buddhist society or specifically with like Buddhist leadership. Um, I think the very obvious example is, is the uh, experience of Tibet in the 20th century and the choices of not just the Dalai Lama, but the entire Tibetan government in exile, uh, how they chose to deal with, um, you know, the incursion of the Han Chinese. There is the example of um, Zen Buddhism's relationship to um not just samurai culture, but later, you know, like 20th century nationalistic uh, Japanese adventures. And also, as a commenter brought up, um, uh, Nichiren Buddhism has a has a relationship to that, too. So we can talk about that. There's also I was just thinking of the example of um, how con 
not contemptuous is the wrong word, how protective of Buddhism as the national religion the Thai people are and how much they can't stand like the Western California way of it. And since it's a it's a tourist destination country, you know, they're 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 used to all these people coming in and sort of treating Buddhism as if it's like this thing, cute thing that belongs on Instagram. And they really uh, <laughs> they really don't like that. And uh, in fact, they'll put you in jail in certain circumstances, depending on the nature of the violation. And um, and then finally, um, I, I wanted to address also the story in in Vietnam. Um, uh, you know, there's the famous um, the famous monk who lit himself on fire. He wasn't the only one, but the one who has the very very famous picture of it from the Vietnam War era. Um, Tick Chuan Duc, I think, is his name. Um, that was not a protest against the war. Actually, that was a protest against a sort of proto globalist. Uh, South Vietnamese government that was put in place that was um, favoring the foreign religion of Catholicism over um, Buddhism and was like persecuting the sort of traditional Buddhist religion there. And so it was sort of, it's not really nationalism per se, but it is sort of a nationalist flavor flowering of um, specifically by, you know, by Buddhist leadership in that country. And I actually think that episode is probably very widely misunderstood um as having something to do with the war but it actually was kind of tangential to the war so anyway any one of those topics we could go deeper into now tibet's an interesting one because i i mean just as you mentioned that um and you mentioned of course i guess it was the uh, south vietnamese regime uh which was persecuting buddhism well a little bit but i'm thinking specifically that early on in the in tibet's history uh one of the kings of tibet lang dharma switched over from supporting Buddhism to trying to promote Bon and was actually persecuting Buddhism. And what ended up happening was a Buddhist monk by the name of Lalung Pelji Dorje assassinated him and fled and it caused the collapse of the Tibetan Empire. But the interesting thing is it's not really seen as a bad thing that he did that by Tibetans, at least insofar as I'm aware. No, on the contrary. He's like uh, regarded as something of a of a hero. I mean, the whole, the the historiography of Lang Dharma and like just what exactly his quote-unquote persecution consisted in is a matter of some dispute and we'll never really know there's you know the kind of like um the one take that I've seen kind of build towards something like a consensus is it it was more just that he was like under the previous regime the Buddhist faith or whatever you want to call it had been receiving lavish support from the Tibetan imperial court. Um, it was something like a state religion. And Langdharma either reduced or eliminated that support. And this was what was, the, the, the you know, again, this, we don't really know. Um, and it's kind of irrelevant except for understanding that, yeah, like the, it, it's really only in the 20th century or late 20th you know early 21st century that you see asian buddhists even like some of them kind of understand the idea of you know buddhism as some, some kind of globalist or 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 that it can be aligned with globalist kind of ideas up up to that like up to that point you know like uh, or you mentioned thailand you know the the Buddhist kingdom of Thailand or Siam, and the and the Buddhist kingdom of 
Cambodia or the various sort of you know Buddhist kingdoms were constantly at war with each other. Uh, there was a famous case oh, of uh, yeah. I of mean, the a, Thais and the Burmese. Yeah, exactly. The Thais and the Burmese hate each other. There's a there was a there was a a big golden Buddha statue. It was recently discovered. It was like I think either so, I don't know if it was solid gold, but it was some you know basically literally a metric ton of gold in this Buddha statue that nobody knew was gold because uh, during one of these you know many conflicts between these kingdoms, the um, the monks at this monastery in order to hide it covered it up with plaster, and and then it was basically covered in plaster for a thousand years or whatever until at some point it started peeling off and they were like oh let's try to fix it because it's a nice part of this temple you know we want to make sure that this art is preserved and in the course of of doing that they're like uh guys uh there's actually a, a solid golden buddha dude that is amazing dude yeah. that is such a cool story though yeah Whoa. um i'll see if i can find references to that i i, I was uh i i, I was at the site where this or nearby where this happened and was told the story but anyway it doesn't doesn't really matter the point is um like this you know obviously this was not like you know the monks at the monastery at the one place would have supported their king and the monks in the monastery in the other place would have supported their king it's not you know the, the fact that we're both buddhist is not any kind of you know in tibet part of the reason why a big part of the reason in fact why china was able to um succeed in their invasion of tibet yes they had superior numbers yes they had superior technology but it but there was also a lot of internal dissension. Tibet was never really united. And to the extent it was, like, I mean, I could go on about, I was in fact, just before this recording started, I was complaining about Gelux. Um, and to the extent that Tibet was ever kind of united, it was under Gelux. And there was a lot of suppression of rival sc schools or traditions within Buddhism. A lot of that was regional. Point being, um, you know, Tibetan kingdoms, rival fiefdoms, were always at war with each other. And, so, you know, this idea that, like, oh, we're all going to get along because we're all Buddhist. I mean, did you see that in, in Europe under Christianity? I mean, Christianity is, is very similar in a lot of ways, you know, particularly in terms of this certain kind of universalist outlook. Did that prevent them from being at war with each other? Did that prevent them from having a sense of national identity? Obviously not. So, you know, I mean, we could talk about, like, you know, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a critique lurking in the background here about, um, you know, the extent to which national identity based on linguistic identity is a kind of 19th or, you know, 18th, 19th century construct. And there's some truth to that, but, like, everybody in Tibet would have understood they were at least some kind of Tibetan you know, everybody, you know, French speakers, German speakers would have understood themselves to be such, even if they were divided along, you know, for, for reasons of whatever, it doesn't matter. Like that, that's not preventing them from having a sense of themselves or, and, and it's not preventing, you know, the, the, their religious identity and their linguistic or ethnic identity are very closely intertwined. And, and, and that's been the case. I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's ever been a period in human history other than this one where that's ever been an, even in question. I think you make a, a really important point, DK, when you talk about that, you know, before the 20th century, that it would be basically impossible to find um, Buddhists, whether they're lay people or or um, monks or leaders um, who who even would have a concept of Buddhism as 
what we would now understand as universal listening, even in the Mahayana, that of course there's this there's this sort of universe in the sense of like universe, like stars and galaxies. You know what I mean? Like a a love that reaches in all directions to a all multiverse. Well, we, we our universe yeah, is just a I mean, from a, Buddha, right, I mean, a Buddhist yeah. cosmology. Right. We're there's an infinite sea of universes, literally infinite, right. and we're just yes. like one little one little universe, like a grain of sand in an infinite right. ocean. Sorry, go on. Right, that's okay. Um, but you know, just to step back and take a broader broader look at this. I think that, you know, probably most of our listeners are, I've thought about this before and, um, but it it bears considering, um, afresh sometimes. And that is just how different the modern world is because of communication and transportation. And, you know, for our, for anybody who's listening, who like lives in a rural community or who spends, um, who spends a lot of time on foot. And I understand that in rural communities, you're often driving very long distances and everything, but let's say, you know, if you, or, you know, even if you live in the city and you like to spend time hiking or something, if you ever spend an entire day just on foot moving around and then look at a map, like look on Google maps at, you know, where, where you were during that time of that day, and then slowly zoom out, um, you know, to bigger and bigger areas, and you you start to get a sense for the scale of real distance between between places, between peoples, and and it would be understood that that this is just this giant planet. You know, the planet seems so small sometimes, but when you look at it from that other perspective, it's so big, it's so vast. Um, and if you're covering these these distances on you know at the fastest possible way would be, I guess, on horseback. You know, if you're if you're covering these kinds of distances like this, like you, you would go, you know, an entire lifetime and not, not traveling very far from your home. And even like great Kings, you know, even somebody like Alexander uh, the great took, you know, like 12 years or whatever it was to get from Macedonia to Afghanistan. And that was considered, you know, one of the greatest feats in human history to take that army all the way across those lands. And anyways, my point is, is that this, the world is this vast, place and it is incredibly detailed on on this micro scale and that's just the way the world frankly still is although we we have a delusion about how it is because of transportation because of communication but that's how it's always been and buddhism and probably any religion but i i don't know maybe i won't go that far let's just stick to buddhism buddhism was a feature a practice a teaching right that would spread into these communities and people would learn a way to live in the world from the teachings of the Buddha, from the Dharma and from the proselytizers, you know, from monks who would teach them and everything. And you were supposed to take these teachings and apply them to the world as it is, right? It was never the point to like, you know, make everybody all the same everywhere somehow through the magic of the Dharma or something. It's like a completely alien way to look at it. And if you read old books, if you read history, and if you if you just walk around on the surface of the planet, you can start to get back in touch with, yeah, I guess reality is the way to put it. Um, and when you do that, when in my own case, when I do that, you you really start to appreciate just how weird our own way of looking at things is um our our view of the, as this globe as this one place where all this stuff happens and um all at the same time you know you just get off the internet and go walking for a day and you get a, a totally different view of the world and history you know there there is something to be said about that where we often will miss the real scale of the world but 
I would also say that those, those developments that you mentioned with respect to, say, transportation and communications have really changed the nature of reality in a very fundamental way. I mean, the notion of a, quote, Western Buddhist more than 150 years ago would have been, like, a total absurdity. And yet now, it's as uh, Logo was observed, we don't really have a choice except to approach religion from a comparative religionist standpoint because we're literally constantly confronted by this barrage of information that our ancestors 200 or 300 years ago would never have had to deal with. Um, the very fact that this information is available to us now has really changed the entire way in which we're relating to um, religious experience and cultural experience as well. So I think that's something else to just keep in mind when we're talking about the scale issue. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the cat is out of the bag, right? It's it's not going back in. This is the world we live in. And, um, you know, maybe some future societies will, it'll all break down and it won't happen anything. But for those of us on this call and for the people listening, I mean, here we are using the internet to talk across vast distances and all that stuff. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. We, we live in the world that we do live in. But, um, yeah. So, uh, you said you had some more uh, historical examples or, or, or things in mind. Uh, do you want to go to some of that? Who's you? You, Aura. Yes. Oh. <laughs> um, well, who, sure. Who, that's a great question. Who, that's a, always in a Buddhist who is, stream. Yeah, like, well, who is I? You know, yes, it is actually interesting that we were mentioning, I mean, on the, t on the subject of Japan, it's, uh, there's often this, uh, this connection that we've mentioned at least a couple of times in podcasts previously about, the about samurai and Zen. Um, I, think even, I think there's a short work by Evola. Maybe I'm not 100% sure of this, but uh, Zen, the religion of the samurai, which basically talks about that connection in some detail. Um, but D.T. Suzuki uh, had this to say in Zen and Japanese culture. Zen upholds intuition against intellection, for intuition is the more direct way of reaching the truth. Therefore, morally and philosophically, there is in Zen a great deal of attraction for the military classes. This is probably one of the main reasons for the close relationship between Zen and the samurai. Basically, the idea was they were attracted to it as a means of cultivating equanimity in the face of death. It's quite a difference from what we see today with these Karens who are inhabiting your local uh, Zen center, thinking it's something about cultivating nice feelings about in between glasses of Chardonnay. Yeah, and it's also a contrast between the way you know modern hyper technical or hyper technological militaries work. You know, I think there are a great number of people um, in the military who who do honor sort of the warrior spirit and do and who do appreciate that side of military life but you know the, they themselves will be the first ones to tell you that as an institution and especially the way it's wielded around the world something like the u.s military is like um is very is very separated out from these kind of you know uh life and death kind of questions which is of course very ironic because they're dealing death using drones and stuff like <laughs> that and that, that's not to you know not to discount the the personal experiences of some people who had to go through, you know, fucking hell or whatever as members of the military. But I mean, like I said, if you talk to them, they'll, these are usually the first people to, to, um, you know, talk about, you know, how they have to get like gender sensitivity training and everything. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the joke about the air force being the chair force is, um, is earned for a reason. So you, you can see that sort of inversion too. um, 
both on the, the Buddhism side, as you said, with the Karens at the at the Zen Center, um, and then on the on the military side with the way the, the military goes right now. You know, one thing on the on the Japan question that that when doing a little research for this show, it's very interesting always to see, you know, the Wikipedia take on stuff, because, of course, as we all know, the problems with Wikipedia um, and the you know extremely stupid and biased way that it, it gets edited and everything. But, you know, when they talk about Japanese na nationalism and Zen in that um, in, in those kinds of sources there, for example, on, on the on the page um, on the book, uh, which is called Zen at War, which ironically, somebody this morning, one of my Twitter DM groups um, actually sent a copy uh, to our group, which was very, very nice. He, if he's listening, he knows who he is. Thanks very much for that. Um, but in the in the article about that book, the whole second half of it is talking about people apologizing um, for the relationship between Japanese Zen and Japanese militarism, specifically in like the late 19th and early 20th centuries. You know, basically the time of, of the, you know, the Japanese Empire after the Meiji Restoration. And, you know, as Westerners, of course, we, we are expected to apologize for everything all the time. So, I, you know, I'm not trying to single out, oh, poor Japan and everything. But it, we do know that World War II gets a special treatment and it's treated as somehow different from all of our wars where... You know, sophisticated, sophisticated people understand the idea that the victors write the history books, right? And the, the bad guys is just whoever lost the war because <laughs> the good guys are the ones who won the war and they get to write the history books. And so, you know, we all know how that gets, uh, how, you know, Germany gets uh, gets a pass when like, where like the Soviet Union doesn't, for example, in the European theater. Um, I mean, Germany doesn't get a pass, obviously. I got that backwards. You, you all know what I'm talking about. But the same thing happens in in the case of Japan. Um, you know, it, it's although there is a sort of apologetic uh, tone. People talk about the um, the uh, the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. For the most part, you know, people just say like, "Oh God, how could Japan have been so militaristic? How could they have been so awful and stuff?" And you can see in this article where they're talking about. Here, here's a quote uh, from a guy oh, from the a very, subject of Japanese militarism. Uh, Oh, a very on, a very westernized uh that's all right on a, a very westernized uh guy uh, uh well i don't know if he's westernized but well just listen to his quote his name is takeo sato the question is not so much this is in reference to uh how zen uh the zen temples essentially supported the the government the question is not so much what happened exactly and when the deeper question even impossible question if you don't mind me adding already my personal urgency is how in heaven's name was this possible that human beings could lose to such a degree their true humanity that they could lose themselves and this is this is in reference to the fact that a large uh religious institution that was highly identified with the you know islands of japan was in support of the japanese government against uh foreign enemies you know i'm not trying to give a total pass to the japanese during that period you know like you could critique them on some things but the idea that it's such a soul searching like oh god how could we sink so low it's like no that's perfectly normal like there's nothing 
atrocious. The easy refuge. I mean, the, the easy honorable. thing to do here is to turn it around Ooh. on the people who are making these accusations. Turn it around on like, why are you forcing Japanese people to grovel this way? Why are you forcing <laughs> German people to grovel this way? Why are you forcing white people to grovel in this way? It's because you want power. It's because you want power over us. It's because you want to take our stuff and take it for yourselves and to get power and to have a nice cushy seat at the top of the pyramid. That's why you're doing this. So don't don't act as though this is I mean it's not this is the the, the behavior this is a pure I'm not saying it's not about two wrongs make a right. It's not about like litigating, you know, how right blah blah blah. We we could even accede to the premise that white people have behaved badly in the past. I mean, I I'm not going to I mean Elsewhere, I would critique that, and elsewhere we could deconstruct and say, like, well, you know, we, we can talk about. It. But it doesn't matter because the point is, like, what the reason why you're doing this, your motivation. You're not after justice; you're after power. Exactly. And you know, the the subject of Japanese militarism is kind of an interesting one because it's very poorly understood in the West, and that's partially because it's just it's very complicated. One and two, a lot of the underlying ideas just have not been translated into English. Um, an interesting project, if any of you do read Japanese, would be to actually kind of look into translating some of these documents because they would be very interesting to read. But how it arose was in like in the early 1920s, there was this brief period of democratic rule in Japan under the Emperor Taisho, who was kind of um, apparently a, a not very competent and sort of disassociated with rule in general. And democracy being basically what it is, is that the party politics collapsed into this co-option by the privileged classes who created this extremely unequal oligarchy where a tiny number of people gained effective control over virtually the entire economy, leaving Japan as like one of the oh, poorest, if not God. the outright Sorry, poorest. Go <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> if not the outright poorest industrialized country in the world with an extreme degree of rural poverty to the point where like people, when the Great Depression hit, people took to like selling their children to factories for to get money. And... In this kind of context of horrific grinding poverty and extreme inequality, all by democratic institutions, the military came to be seen as the only trustworthy institution because it was the only one that was actually representative of most of the people. And so junior officers in there came to see themselves as the deliverers of the nation. And so, you know, this is this of course gets into some really complicated to give a brief overview, what ended up happening was there's two factions that developed in the Japanese military. Um, one called the Toseha, which basically said, okay, let's create this kind of new version of the state, but have the military as this like central organizing principle, and then we'll get the, we'll, we can then kind of bend the industrialists, we can bend the, the politicians and just kind of get them to work together with the eventual goal of taking over the resources of Southeast Asia. And it kind of interlinked with groups of people who saw a war with the United States as both necessary or at least unavoidable. But the far more interesting group were called the Kodoha, which uh, means imperial way. And what they wanted to do was not co-opt these groups, but to sweep aside the corrupt bureaucrats, the opportunistic politicians, and the oligarchical capitalists and create this new state that would be run by the emperor in conjunction with the military. And this would return to like the traditional values of Japan, um, which would be based. Just, it would be based. Sorry, go on. It would be based. <laughs> yes, it would be, it would be, they were anti-industrialization. <laughs> they were anti, anti, anti-market and anti-communist. They wanted to fight a war with the Soviet union and seize the resources there. 
unfortunately, what happened was the faction in favor of the Kodoha um, in 1936 tried to launch a military coup, which was defeated, and the officers associated with it were purged, which resulted in the Toseha and their leader, Hideki Tojo, yeah, taking over, and, well, what paved the way for Pearl Harbor? That. So, in some alternative timeline, there's another Japan where I think this much superior option took over. That would be nice. But anyway. Have you guys ever read um, The Sea of Fertility Tetralogy by Yukio Mishima? No. Never. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Mishima is kind of a meme guy um, on the dissident right. Uh, but for people who have uh, seen the memes and not actually read his books, I, I cannot recommend his books more highly. He's an excellent writer. Um, really any of his books are fantastic but his his sort of magnum opus is a a book uh, for four novels um, and it covers that period from a personal perspective and um, two two of the main characters one of whom gets reborn into a second character there's a reincarnation that happens um, are sort of part of that intrigue um, in the 30s uh, in the 20s I should say and 30s um, so if anyone's looking for an interesting sort of personalized, artistic look at that period of Japanese history, uh, I can't recommend those books highly enough. The first one is uh, Spring Snow. So maybe check out Spring Snow, and if you like it, you can read the rest of them. It's it just I find it, the parallels here just fascinating, though, because here's a country that was completely failed by democratic institutions that were co-opted by wealthy special interests, and the military came to be the only thing that could deliver the people from these special interests. And we wonder, why did Japan become so militaristic? Well, maybe, um, would you be really, would people here be really depressed if a bunch of junior officers decided to do something about Goldman Sachs and the chairman of the Federal Reserve? Would they not be seen as heroes if, you know, a couple of them were to do something about that in Minecraft? It would Minecraft? be popular. It would be, I mean, yeah, right? Like, I, it's, it's not even that hard to imagine. I mean, there's a certain kind of brain-dead boomer, like, you know, cat lady on the left who you know, like the idea of a military coup, just, you know, fascism or something. And then they'd be, but like, I, I, I would have to imagine certainly the like big sections of the Occupy crowd, the Bernie crowd, like, you know, these kind of people, if, if they, if there was a military coup that solved the 1% problem, uh, they, they would at the, at, you know, at least look the other way. Right. I, I have oh, to. Absolutely. Imagine. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's like most people who are not total midwits understand it's the ends that matter, not the means by which you get there. <laughs> and yeah. Anyway, but, yeah, um, no, the, the Japanese experience is interesting. I don't, I don't know nearly. I, I, I really appreciate that um, deep dive uh, or whatever snorkel depth. I mean, you, you you're providing context. <laughs> I have no idea of, and and that's um very valuable and and. Uh, not something I was aware of, so thank you for for that. Um, oh, no, no, it's. I think it's. I think it's an interesting context because it actually did provide rise for a group within Nichiren, which I think was mentioned by one of the commenters earlier. Right, we had a question um, in the chat about Nichiren, which I also. I, I mean, I'm familiar with Nichiren as yes. like I mean, you know they like venerate the Lotus Sutra, which is a very valuable I, sutra. And, have Please. mixed feelings about. Yeah, Nichiren, as an organization, they have SGI. like <laughs> yeah, Soka Gakkai International is a bit of a weird. Thing. Uh, Basically, they sit around and chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo a lot, and they have a really unusual set of interpretations of Buddhism, which I think are really um, 
extremely unorthodox mm. to the point where I'm really questioning whether it still can be considered Buddhism as such. Sure. But but within Nichiren, and this is why I won't the, say I know all the lo- of it look is, the Lotus Sutra is good yes. and mantras invoking the name of sutras is, is cool. So I mean, not this, I wouldn't necessarily say that's all you have to do, but I don't know. You know, what I mean, like, but but yeah, Soga Gakkai I know is a little bit strange, but uh, go yes. on. No, but uh, within this group, there was a, pre- a, a Nichiren priest by the name of uh, Nisho Inoue, and he created this organization of junior officers called the League of the Blood, or Ketsumedan in Japanese. And the League of the Blood came up with this idea that to fix Japan, what each of these people should do, and he, he collected together these volunteers who made a list of 20 prominent Japanese liberal politicians and business oligarchs, and said, each of you need to assassinate this one man. It's called the one man, one death policy. And so what ended up happening is these, this team went out in 1932 and they only assassinated two people, the former finance minister and the head of the Mitsui conglomerate, Dan Takuma. Um, of course, Nisho Inoue was arrested and at his trial, um, he explained that more or less they decided on this, a system of assassination because whether successful or not, this is the way to have the least number of victims. Japan basically needed to have some kind of revolution to liberate it from this awful system of government that was oppressing and, and, uh, and, and mistreating the population. And by doing it via assassination, it was going to be the least deadly ne- method of doing that. And so a lot of these people who were in this organization were, were prepared to sacrifice themselves. They were prepared to die in order to, to ensure that the fewest number of people would have to go in order to make this happen. And... Um, one of the most interesting parts is during this trial, he, 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 the, Inoue compared Japan and the spirit of Japan to the Buddha nature and said it's universally present, but it's concealed by these passions of ignorance, attachment, and degradation. And he associates these with this kind of elite, this self-serving elite that was covering up this national spirit, and that by, by taking these people out, he could uncover it. And so. This, this, this interpretation sounds really unusual, but later this a Zen priest at the time, who was, quite fa- who was quite noteworthy at the time, Genpo Yamamoto, actually testified in favor of him and the rest of the League of the Blood, saying that in light of the events that have befallen our nation of late, there is, apart from those who are selfish and evil, no fair and upright person who would criticize the accused of their actions because they were one with the national spirit. That's amazing, man. I, I, I will just echo what DK said before. This stuff is, it's, it's incredibly interesting. And, and it just, you know, it just goes to highlight um, how, how different a way uh, to look at, to, to look at all of this it is, you know, and, and when people, you know, we, we can't know the history of, of every little thing in the world, obviously. And, but the funny thing is, you know, of course, we get these, these, uh, all the history we, we do get is um, so tainted with with this, you know, the sort of the global homo uh, arc of history, progressive style, you know, nonsense that we all get taught 24 um, seven. Then you go and take a look at what was actually going on and the real motivations of the people and the situation on the ground in it, you get a totally different picture of things. No, absolutely. It's it, when you actually like read the stuff that I mean, this is why I think that Japanese militarism and the underlying theories behind it it would really be great if someone who does read Japanese would take time to look into it and translate some of these documents because I think reading it would be fascinating. 
it almost appears to me, at least, that the idea behind it was the rebirth of the heroic spirit of the samurai and bringing that back, throwing aside like this corruption of modernity and bringing that back. And, and from that perspective, it might be the best ideology of the 20th century, at least in this respect. Um, to transition a little bit to the, you know, to the example of Thailand I gave earlier, I don't have a great deal of historical detail or anything, but um, as was mentioned before, it is, you know, it was the Buddhist kingdom of Thailand, and it is still a kingdom. Now, the, the military has a great deal of power there. Uh, just over the last 10 years or so, there was sort of a soft coup. Um, and there is a there are democratic institutions in there, but they're pretty neutered. Um, they, you know, they go through all the rigmarole, they, they vote on stuff, and they have representatives and everything. But it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a little bit mostly for show. Um, uh, anything that, that really contradicts the, the people in power just simply doesn't doesn't get passed, just like in our country, except for it, the people in power <laughs> there is an entirely different set of people. Um, and the royal family, now they, they, the royal family is not exactly powerful there in terms of making law or anything. They're, they're much closer to like the English royal family or something there. However, one big difference is that the, you are not allowed to criticize uh, the royal family in Thailand. That is against the law and they take it quite seriously. And um, that it goes to reflect a kind of a belief that their traditional institutions are meaningful and that they represent the Thai people, that they're special to Thailand and to Thai people. And Buddhism is also viewed this way. Um, not only do they revere the Buddha and monks and great Buddhist saints and everything like that for their own you know, good qualities because they are Buddhists and this is what they believe, but they also view their own reverence of the Buddha as a particular feature of them being Thai people. And so when you disrespect um, an image of the Buddha or a temple grounds or something like that, um, by not, you know, by not having proper polite manners and, and all this kind of thing, not only are you disrespecting the Buddha and the Dharma, etc., but you're also like disrespecting Thailand and Thai people. You and they see, simply yeah. won't, they simply just don't allow it. You just simply don't allow it. <laughs> That's I all there is to it. I think it's illegal, at least not yet. You know, we can hope that it will be soon. But I think you see something very similar to this in, in Poland now or um, also in, I think, in Greece. Uh, my understanding is that the, um, I think the Greek national revolution against Turkish occupation, if I, if, I under, if I recall correctly, it began on the Feast of the Virgin Mary, um, which is August 15th in the Christians, both like Orthodox and Catholic. And it's like a holy day of obligation for Catholics. Um, but like the Virgin Mary is extremely highly regarded in in Greece. And like that's a giant national Greek holiday and like Greek identity up to now. I mean, I, I'm sure it's it's, um, you know, as as Europe continues to secularize that this is maybe problematic in some ways but I, I you know it's still a giant holiday in Greece and like you know Polish national holidays Polish you know Catholic religious holidays are are deeply intertwined and, and to you know it would be unthinkable to you know as a Polish person to not have um, respect for the Virgin Mary you know uh, I don't know that they have the same kind of holiday on August 15th but the the point is yeah I mean this idea that you know I, I guess if, if there's one thing you take away from listening to this, 
episode. Maybe you know it, it's it's that you know you're the we're the weird ones or the people who are trying to say that you know if you're going to be religious that um that you there's that that would exist in some kind of a conflict with having an ethnic identity having a national identity having a sense of pride in in your ancestors and where you come from you know you're the those are the weird people those are the people that are out of touch those are the people who don't know what they're talking about those are the people who 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 fail to understand the, the nature of reality um there's a there's an acronym that gets thrown around sometimes I'm, I'm i'm pretty sure we've used it before but you know weird uh what is it uh western educated industrialized i forget the rest but um you know weirdos people who are who are from you know who who take the the who drank the kool-aid of industrialized european society and, and and of liberalism in particular and who think that that is normative across time and place when it really 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 isn't um and at a certain level, I mean, at this point, it's like, well, why would I even, you know, not to say that I wouldn't argue if I think there might be something to be gained by it, but, we, you know, in response to some kind of shit lib who, were, who, was, who would say, you know, like, uh, who would come at me with some, I'd be like, well, why, I'm, there's nothing to argue about here. You're just wrong. There's nothing, you, you know, you, you don't have any, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm expressing myself very well, but, like, there's nothing to argue against. There's nothing to, like, have to justify. You know, you're the one who needs to justify why you think that this very, very strange interpretation of, of religion, whether Buddhism or Christianity or whatever else, that would not have made sense to any of it, its adherents before the day before yesterday, you know, that this is now going to be normative and this is the, the correct way to understand it. And, you know, however many thousands of years of practitioners all had it wrong because they thought of themselves of, of you know, they thought their families were important. They thought their tribe was important. They thought their nation or their, you know, being part of a polity united under a king or whatever. They, they thought that was important um, and they were all wrong and you now Mr. you know uh, Mrs. Karen with the cats you have it right you know get the fuck out of here <laughs> even within weird uh, weird populations w-e-r-r-d uh, populations they have to constantly keep gaslighting people because even within like highly uh, individualistic societies like you know north northwestern Europe descended peoples who, you know, we really are quite individualistic and, and that's not put down upon us by our, uh, you know, it's manipulated by our overlords, but it, it wasn't created by our overlords. You know, I, it is a feature of of people descended from that, that part of the world that we, we tend to have, you know, certain indiv individualism as part of our, our character. But even inside of those, um, inside of those populations and i'm speaking <laughs> as one of those people myself they have to continually gaslight people because even those people have an instinct to family to tribe you know to locality to 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 loving your own and and to wanting to wanting to build something um with, with people uh that, that share your same views and everything and they have to constantly gaslight you and tell you that's not really what you want that's a low class thing it's a, they you know they use status and money rewards and and punishments um to, to to keep this from from flowering up but i think it's you know it's worth repeating that point because the gaslighting is so constant and the ghettoization of of any sort of uh, dissident ideas uh, is so uh totalitarian in the system that we live under that even people that are really smart and well versed on this who whoever you know, a strong internal sense of 
right and wrong and who have done a lot of reading and thinking and talking on these kinds of issues. You can still get caught up sometimes thinking, oh, God, you know, is, is this some sort of is it weird that I think this or no, it is totally normal. It's like what all human beings have thought throughout all time and everything. And, and the, the bizarre the bizarre idea is this idea that that, you know, <laughs> we're going to create this like featureless gray goo mass across all of the world. And, and <laughs> uh, that somehow that's going to not only work, which it wouldn't, uh, but be be better, which also it wouldn't. Yeah, it, it is a... possible, which it isn't. It wouldn't it would just suck. suck. I mean, it's already we, we get like <laughs> yeah. a taste of that now. Look at how much it sucks. Sorry, why I'm uh, go on. No, it's it, it is interesting, though, because it, it is an extraordinarily hubristic way of thinking of if of thinking if you if you really dig into it. I mean, OK, we had a way of approaching the world and a way of, of understanding the world that if assuming like using the short scale, like civilization started about forty eight hundred. 5,000 years ago. So we had 4,800 years of this particular way of thinking. And now because some French people read Voltaire and decided to kill their king, we have to throw all of that out and start over again. Okay. So you want to <laughs> yeah, tag right. society. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, I mean, it's an incredibly crazy way of thinking about it. It's very hubristic because we're just going to make a clean break with everything that happened before that because obviously they were wrong. Okay, well, it's like, you know, it's, it's similar to the reasoning of like, you know, some Germans did a bad thing. Therefore, you know, there's no difference between beautiful and ugly or smart <laughs> and stupid. And if you think there is, there's something wrong with you and you need to be denied the ability to feed yourself or your family. Like, I mean, that that's basically where we are. Right. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it, again, this is kind of the kind of thing is like, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't necessarily mean to be giving people rhetorical advice, but honestly, this is just beneath contempt. And, and I've had um, on occasion some good results when dialoguing with people to like, you know, because because so much of really the entirety of it's all a posture. Right, the 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 dominance of this uh, neoliberal narrative, this this idea, you know, it's it's all just it it, it assumes it, there's a there's a there is a certain kind of like concrete power to it. I mean, in the sense that your life will be ruined if you're caught in public, you know, being a thought criminal. But at the same time, like precisely because there's no actual substance to it at the end of the day, really all they have is the ability to destroy your life. All they have is the posture. There is, it's just a completely hollow, empty, um, just meaningless thing. So to, to, you know, to interact with people from a position of strength to when, when challenged or when somebody, you know, tries to pull rank, just to pull a higher rank of like, <laughs> you actually believe this garbage about, you know, uh, it doesn't matter, you know, any of this stuff, like, please give me a break. That can be quite effective. You know, I'm a big believer that um, things that manifest on the spiritual plane, if you will, um, absolutely affect people in the real world. And so just as a religious practitioner myself, you know, it's hard to make the, do this kind of advice without sounding like you're getting high and mighty or something. So obviously take what I say with a grain of salt. But the best thing that you can ever do is just become a really great... <laughs> really great person you know that sounds so silly when i put it but i mean yeah through the practice of uh virtue and generosity and meditation all the things that we talk about on our episodes that are more you know focused tightly on buddhist doctrine 
th that makes you into the kind of person that people like and want to be around. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I do, I fail at this all the time myself, but so this reminder is for myself as well. But, you know, somebody who's calm, who's generous, who's smiling, but not in this like weird, fake, condescending way or something, but who, who generally just is like a good person to be around, that person has so much better chance of of winning people over to a particular side because and you deal oh, with your interlo yes. interlocutors you know certain people are, are worthy are, are not worthy of uh engaging in that way because they they truly are your enemies and they're they're trying to, you know you can have love for them but it, maybe don't try to convert them because they're they're literally trying to like you know <laughs> sam hyde quote you but um from for most people, most people are not malicious in their intent. They just they just have different ideas because they, they've been taught to have different ideas. And you can absolutely um, make a difference in the world, much better difference in the world by by making yourself into an agreeable person than you can by, you know, railing against people. And I know you guys already agree with that, so I'm not trying to lecture you. I, I just like to toss that in, you know, because this is a, this is a podcast about the Dharma. Yeah, well, what what I was going to say, and I think, I mean, it, it goes well with what you were saying. Is I mean, that's I mean, to to continue with that line of analysis, they really give the game away when when you when like in the current development, and it's not to say that it's across the board, but it, it's certainly they're like you see it in the motivation, you see it in the rhetoric, you see it increasingly, and, and the fact that they have you know, the left broadly construed or neoliberal, you know, both left and right, you know, liberals and conservatives, conservatives are just another kind of liberal, right? And what is liberalism or what has it become or what has it exposed itself to be is the idea that there is no difference between non-virtue and virtue. And not in the cool way, the Buddhist way, where there's like an ultimate reality that, you know, um, in, in kind of ultimate terms, in terms of like a, a, a pure and perfect knowledge that transcends all human categories, all categories, period, and is absolutely stainless. You know, yes, from that kind of an ultimate perspective, we can maybe say that, you know, the, the difference between virtue and non-virtue is, is, is um, you know, conceptually constructed to some extent and therefore not ultimately valid. Okay, we can talk about that in a certain kind of very, very highfalutin way. But that's not how they're talking about it. They don't even, they don't even acknowledge. I mean, you, you, you put, I, I've gotten, I've gotten in fights my whole life with these people, you know, because to me it's like very, it's always been just really almost, you could say self-evident that there is such a thing as ultimate truth and any kind of ability, you know, the, to say that there isn't is just asserting that the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth in a really stupid way and it's just self-defeating and pointless. So clearly there isn't, you know, a state of affairs. It may not be quote unquote objective in the sense that it can come, you know, it, to say something is objective means that it would maybe fall under a subject object distinction and that's a problem. But the, 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 it nevertheless remains the case that there is an objective truth or an ultimate reality, whatever you want to call it. And that, you know, the practice of virtue is the way to get in touch with that, that virtue means things that bring us closer in touch with the nature of reality. So when the same people, you know, when, when you when you scratch this this uh, anti-nationalism and and what you see under like I mean, uh, 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 an atom's depth under the surface is, you know, go and have promiscuous sex with anonymous partners and, and, and do whatever you feel like. And you can, you know, just indulge yourself in any number of ways and then lol, YOLO, nothing, Matt. Like, that really just gives up the whole game in, in, from my perspective. It really shows, you know, that, these, that, 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 that it's the very idea of behaving virtuously. It's the very idea of virtue that they're at war with. It's, the, it's reality itself that they're revolting against, that they're, you know, it's a satanic revolt against reality that, that to put it in kind of Christian language, that that um, 
motivates them. It's this resentment that there is a, 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 a reality and, and that they, sooner or later they're going to have to deal with the consequences of their bad decisions um, and, and, and resentment at that state of affairs that, you know, like, and, and, and that's it. You know, that, that, that's all, you know, so you don't have to like, you know, you can, you can argue on other terms and that's fine. But, but when you, when you scratch them and you see like, you know, oh, go, you know, chop your dick off, whatever you feel like doing, that's fine. Please, please give me a break. Don't, don't, don't claim to have some kind of, you know, they, they, you, they, they, yeah, I'm not making any sense anymore, but that's what I wanted to say. Oh no, you are my friend. Hallelujah, yes. man. I'm clapping my hands while I'm on mute over here, man. Hallelujah. Anyway. Um, that's probably a good place you to know, end it for now, unless you had for you know, we have some closing thoughts. I did. I mean, if any of these mistakes about the modern interpretation of Buddhism can be drawn to one single mistake, I would say that it's a confusion between the Buddha's insistence on not cultivating hatred of other living beings versus not taking any action whatsoever, no matter what happens. This is a very important distinction to make. Sometimes it is necessary to take action that may be physically violent. What's important, though, is when doing this, do not cultivate hatred or other similar states of mind. If you can do that, then ultimately it is quite consistent with Buddhism. Yeah, well, the, the problem, I mean, do these people, I mean, I, I mean, we said this before, but it's worth saying again, and, and I hope this audience, this episode reaches a wider audience, um, you know, do these people what do these people even mean by love you know like do they have it i don't think they have to the extent that they have any kind of definition at all it's just like oh you know pleasure something about pleasure something about warm fuzzy feels that they don't have any real like they don't they don't even know what they mean you can oh, agree or disagree absolutely. with the buddhist definition but the buddhist understanding you know to me love means i want you to be happy to have the causes and conditions for happiness hatred means i want you to suffer i want you i want you to have the causes and conditions for suffering this is completely different now we can talk about what does happiness mean and what does suffering mean but at least that's like a ground to you know have a conversation to think through these things with a little more sophistication the idea that you know when you punish a child do you hate the child you know, do you want the child to suffer? No. In fact, you punish the child because you want the child to be happy, right? You want the child to flourish. You want the child to enjoy a, a real, meaningful, lasting happiness and to have the causes and conditions for a happiness that's ultimately, ideally, beyond even the possibility of ever experiencing any kind of suffering. That means moral formation. That means sometimes, potentially, acting in a way that either causes some kind, I wouldn't say harm, I mean, that's the real question here is like, does causing, is causing pain the same thing as causing harm? Is causing pain the same thing as causing suffering? Pain is not the same thing as suffering. And, and pleasure is not the same thing as happiness. But these distinctions are completely lost on the left. That's and right. And I, if I may, I, you know, I, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought this up at the end because, I, you know, I was getting into it on Twitter with somebody the other day talking about, oh, you know, I, I, Buddhism sucks because it, people are supposed to seek their own happiness. But what you just said, DK, is the whole point. <laughs> is the whole point. You know, because he was saying, because I think, I don't know what he thought. It but, doesn't you know, matter. Maybe... I mean, he's just living with some kind of. Mo I mean, he has some weird. You know, he's got the. I don't know. I can't. Hand, like whatever. It doesn't matter. I don't know. I, it yeah, don't I matter. Think it was, I think it was third hand, but just in case he's listening, actually, he 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 engaged with me respectfully. So, but oh, that's but nice. the particular the particular way that he phrased it, I was like, well, that's you know, I don't agree with that because it's what you just said, DK. It's when you wish 
for happiness for others, you wish them to be to have happiness and the causes of happiness. Wish them to be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. And you wish that same thing for your own self. So when I sit down and I wish for myself, may I have happiness and the causes of happiness. May I be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May I look after myself with ease. I am the owner of my actions. That's what I say. What that means is, it doesn't mean may I have cummies. You know, it does not mean may I have a pro- product. It does not mean, yeah. you know, may may I, it doesn't even mean may I have money, right? I mean, right. if if, the, it can, if money it is going to get right. used, that's right. If, it, if it's going to be used to further my happiness, then yes, that is something that's going to be added to. But the point is to have the causes of happiness and to get rid of the causes of suffering. And what we learn by looking deeply, first of all, we use common sense, but then also through the meditation, looking deeply, you realize that certain actions that might be that get classified in this in the neoliberal world as like good things are actually really harmful for yourself and are going to cause you suffering. So even just wishing happiness for yourself is a call towards these generosity, morality, concentration, insight, and all these things. People like this is often something that that, that gets lost is you know like altruism from a Buddhist perspective. Like when you talk about the bodhisattva motivation, like I mentioned earlier, altruism, this idea of you know complete selflessness because in buddhism you know the foundational thing is there is no self that doesn't that doesn't mean what that means is that there is no real ultimate distinct like in ultimate terms in terms of that kind of ultimate perspective that i was sort of alluding to earlier whether you like the intention is the same for yourself and for others it's not that like i wish for others happiness to the like you know, and therefore I'm going to, you know, like kill myself metaphorically or, or you know, like to, to behave, behave in a very kind of um, self-destructive way in order to benefit others. It means your mind is purified to the extent where it, it you don't need that. You can't you literally no longer really process that distinction, whether it's wishing for your own happiness or others happiness. It doesn't that's not a distinction that really makes sense anymore. That's a very difficult thing. I, I probably impossible to really rationally wrap your head around. It's it's not meant to be something that you can rationally wrap your head around. The 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 reason I bring it up is because the idea that that's going to mean like any kind of of, of you know that 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 okay then you know body you know we have to like empty our bank accounts to to donate to children in Africa like you got the you you're just thinking about this completely ass backwards, you know. Yeah, man. Anyway. Well, I'm done because I have gotten on my high horse like 12 times. Yeah, me too. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, as always, um, you know, we... Oh, sorry. So did you have a... Yes? At the end of the day, I mean, the way I look at it is the modernist interpretation of Buddhism and the people who push it, why would you trust their interpretation? There's 2,500 years of <laughs> what we're selling you right now. Right versus maybe 50 of theirs if that and and it if constantly that. changes you know because now i'm sure there's like transgender inclusive buddhism which like even the modernists of 50 years ago or 20 10 years ago would like what the fuck are you talking about so uh yeah it's uh you know but but yeah uh anyway thank you for that for that reflection ym that's definitely you know, again, we we just look at the listen to what we value. Listen, if you if you have any questions or doubts, of course, we're always here. Um, I was going to say before, and I'll say it now. 
Um, we have a Telegram channel at uh, Right Wing Dharma Squads. Telegram, t- uh, whatever the, it's just the Right Wing Dharma Squads, and you can you know sign sign in for the chat if you want to discuss um, or, or whatever. But you know, if you have any questions or you have any doubts, just ask yourself like what, who are the people that are who are we referencing what are we referencing what are we pointing to where are we deriving our you know whatever little bit of authority if you want to call it authority we have you know we talk about the text right we go we we do a, a series on on Nagarjuna we tell you what was in the actual text we read the sutras we read all these things what do they read where do they get their ideas from who are they citing who do they consider to be important right that's that's something to keep in mind. So when, when somebody if somebody were to tell you encounter someone who thinks you know like oh Buddhism is you know means we all have to live under whatever you know means we no more Buddhism therefore no more borders like where do they get that from? Who's teaching them that? Because the Dalai Lama doesn't say that. I'm not saying the Dalai Lama is the be all end all, but you know he doesn't say that. I'm not saying that. Who says that? And why do they say that? Just something to think about. Um, with that, that's white. I think we'll, yeah, we'll leave it. <laughs> We'll leave it there for today. And uh, as always, yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you guys for contributing. And we will catch you next time.